Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Bowman, the host of Side Door, a podcast with candid conversations with world-class entrepreneurs. In this day and age, it is actually quite cheap and easy to test things. And so I would always encourage people to optimize for learning as much as they can for as little money as possible. In the 2005 movie Wedding Crashers, the main characters, played by Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn, had a cover story that they were venture capitalists from Vermont. I had no idea what that was at the time. It was the first time I had ever heard venture capitalist. Fast forward to 2009, and I discovered the famous venture capitalist Fred Wilson's blog, and quickly learned what venture capital was. Ever since, I've been fascinated with venture capital, or more affectionately known as VC. For anyone unfamiliar, VCs invest money into early stage startups in exchange for equity in the company. For example, a VC might invest $1 million and value your company at $4 million post money. They now own 25% of your company. Unlike angel investors who are wealthy individuals investing their own money, VCs are investing out of a fund which comprises of other people's money, usually from institutions like endowments or pension funds. There's a lot more nuance to this, but that's the basics. VCs are an important part of the tech ecosystem. You need capital to build a business, especially a fast-growing business. Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Uber, Airbnb are all examples of companies that accepted venture capital during their journeys. Startups are high risk and traditional ways of getting money for a new business, like a bank loan, just aren't an option. VCs know the risk profile of their investments and are looking to take on these risky bets. Venture capitalists know that 9 out of 10 of their investments will likely fail and return $0, but that one win will make up for all of their losses. Today's guest is the pod's first VC. She and Co. is a general partner at Hustle Fund, an early stage venture capital fund that's located in San Francisco and Singapore. I follow Sheehan's partners, Elizabeth and Eric, on Twitter, and I find both their insights really useful and their kindness, compared to other VCs on Twitter, to be refreshing. I replied to one of Elizabeth's tweets, and before I knew it, I was connected with Sheehan, and now, she's on the pod. In our conversation, Sheehan and I discuss the opportunity in Southeast Asian tech, the unique structure and approach of Hustle Fund, and the different circumstances of building a startup in Southeast Asia. Hi, Sheehan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jesse. Great to be here. Yeah, so thanks for making the time. Uh, so you are the first uh, investor that we are having on the podcast. Uh, and so before we get back into your background and how you got into venture capital, um, tell us about uh, you are the managing partner at Hustle Fund. So can you share a little about the role and um, Hustle Fund? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, Hustle Fund is a pre-seed fund based between the San Francisco Bay Area and Singapore. Uh, pre-seed means we're super early, um, and so we work with companies who are just at the start of their journeys. We typically write an initial check of 25K. We work with companies on projects for four to six weeks, and then we make a decision on a larger check anywhere from 100 to 600K. Um, over the last three years, we've written initial checks into about 200 companies, and in about 20% of those cases, we've written a larger follow-on check. Interesting. So yeah, we'll, let's we'll t- dive into that because that's a little bit different than uh, traditional venture models. Uh, but you, you know, t- 
tell us about how you got into VC, right? That's a big thing that a lot of people, you know, on Twitter are, are interested in. Uh, so share your journey. Yeah, um, I guess this is my second go around at VC. Um, early in my career, I worked for a late stage fund in Menlo Park called Institutional Venture Partners. Um, that was a pretty different end of the spectrum. We were writing 10 to $50 million checks uh, for companies that were doing 10 million or more in revenue. Um, and that was my first introduction to venture capital. Um, after IVP, um, I had another investing role at a hedge fund in Connecticut called Bridgewater Associates. It's a global macro fund. Um, and then I went completely the opposite direction and I went to join a very early stage startup called NerdWallet, um, which uh, folks in the US might be familiar with. It's a consumer finance um, business. Uh, and I was an early employee there um, and we bootstrapped that business to 50 million in revenue. I helped to raise our first institutional money from my old fund, IVP, actually. Um, and over the course of six years, we grew that business to 150 million in revenue, 450 employees, all that good stuff. Um, and then at the end of that, in 2018, I decided to move back to Singapore. Um, my H1B was expiring. Um, and so I had to make the decision about whether I was gonna apply for a green card or, or go home. And um, I had already spent almost 20 years in the US at that point, having first arrived for college. Um, I had a kid, we were thinking about having a second kid. Um, and so it seemed like a really good time to come home. And fortunately my wife agreed, uh, since she's American and had never lived in Asia before. Um, and so we made the decision to move to Singapore before making any decisions about jobs. And at that time, I was evaluating whether I should find another operating role, start a company, go back to investing, or start a fund. And Eric and Elizabeth at Hustle Fund reached out to me and said, hey, we heard you left an org wallet. Um, you should come work with us. And Eric, Elizabeth, and I go back a long way. Um, we've known each other since college days. Um, and we'd always been kind of in and around each other's lives, but hadn't actually had the opportunity to work with each other. Um, and we've all tried to hire each other at one point in time or another. Um, and I said, yeah, I left NerdWallet, but I'm moving to Singapore. So, you know, I don't really know how this whole thing is gonna work. Um, and they said, great, we've always wanted to run a global fund. Since you're moving to Singapore, we can get started sooner. Uh, and I was like, oh, I don't know this seems really hard, you know? And they said, don't, don't rush any decisions. Um, why don't you come hang out with us and spend some time before you make it for mine? So after I left Red Wallet, I spent a bunch of time with Eric and Elizabeth, um, sort of riding side saddle on deals with them. I also spent a bunch of time traveling in the region, uh, meeting founders and investors to try to get a sense of, you know, do I wanna go right back into operating or do I want to make this return to investing? And at the end of the day, I decided to work with Eric and Elizabeth because I felt like I could almost get the best of both worlds. Um, a fund is also a company. And so starting a fund, um, especially um, a whole region from scratch would give me that opportunity to 
have the feeling of building, which is really what I love. Uh, but I think more importantly, the opportunity to work with Eric and Elizabeth um, is a really valuable one because I think as I've gotten further in my career, I tend to optimize more for who I work with rather than what I do. Um, and I really enjoy working with people who push me um, and who I have a high level of trust with. So that's my somewhat circuitous path from venture back to venture. <clears throat> yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, wrap my head around everything that you just said, right? Because you had the, you had the luxury of knowing people and um, having options, right? And then you said that, you know, Hustle Fund is essentially uh, the best of both worlds, right? You are, you are building, right? You have that feeling of building that I think that a lot of uh, startup founders or, you know, early operators uh, crave, uh, but you also get to see that, that side of, you know, the, the investment side of, of all the different opportunities. So when you, when you moved to Singapore, right. And you were looking at part of it was because of visa issues, right. But uh, there's, and you're looking at either starting a fund or, you know, joining a company or, or starting your your own fund. What is it about the Southeast Asia region that uh, excites you and interests you, right? Because um, if, you know, if you had gone to a country that, you know, doesn't have the same level of excitement, no matter how many options you have, it's, it's a totally different experience, right? Uh, so Singapore is kind of like at the heart right now of Southeast Asian technology. Um, so how do you, how did you view it? How did you evaluate it? Uh, when you came back? I think for those of us who work in technology, uh, there's a, there's the aphorism, uh, growth covers up lots of problems. I think if you don't work in technology, sometimes it's breathtaking how quickly tech companies can grow. And, and you know, from the outside, it seems insane, right? I think I just saw the stats on Hopin. It was like founded in June, 2019. I think they raised in June, 2020, and they just raised another round at like $2 billion post, and they did a $250 million acquisition of StreamYard. And so the idea that you can do that in 18 months is kind of mind-boggling, right? But I think that is the promise and power of technology is incredible amounts of leverage, like operating leverage the software and the internet give you. Uh, and so I think when moving to a region like Southeast Asia, I'm captivated by the opportunity to get leverage, not just from software, but to get leverage from a region where uh, it's a very young population. Uh, it's a region that has shown consistent GDP growth, has relatively stable governments that are growth oriented, and where a lot of things just don't work that well, which gives lots of opportunity to entrepreneurs to go build things um, that can make things better. And I think the promise of technology and the internet is that anyone can build it. You don't need to come from a fancy family or have lots of connections to build something on the internet. Uh, you just have to teach yourself. And we have founders in our portfolio who've taught themselves to code. They've taught themselves electrical engineering. They've taught themselves any number of things from YouTube or the internet and just started solving problems. And, and, and perhaps it's a bit of a romantic notion, but I love that that is possible. And when you talk to young people in Vietnam or Indonesia, they have an optimism to them. 
that I don't see as much of in the U.S. outside of the Bay Area. They are, from one of the better, better word, they're hustling, they're learning stuff, they're trying things. I, I met all these Vietnamese entrepreneurs who were like, oh yeah, I always wanted to run a cafe. And I was like, why a cafe? Like F&B margins are horrible. Why did you do that? I thought, I was like, always, almost, always a dream. And then they're like, and then I realized it's a bad business. And then I decided I was going to start something else. And they're just trying stuff, right? And that spirit of progress and motion and trying things that I find to be very energizing. And that's why uh, I'm interested in Southeast Asia. Uh, I think the flip side, of course, is that Southeast Asia is is not one market. It's 10 markets, right? And yeah. and it is non-trivial to, to grow a regional business. Uh, but I think the underlying macro factors are really good starting point for people who want to build businesses and don't need to, no one, no one in Southeast Asia needs to build a self-driving car to build a big business. There's, there's lots of businesses to be built in just automating old school things. Venture capital funds make money when one of their investments are sold to another company or the company goes public. Building on my first example, if the company that raised $1 million for 25% of their company gets bought by another company for $100 million, the venture capitalists would get a return of $25 million, or 25x their original investment. 80% of that would go back to the fund's investors, while the VCs would get the remaining 20% as a bonus. Venture capital funds come in different shapes and sizes. Some funds are small, like 10 to 50 million, while others are huge with more than $1 billion of capital to invest in startups. The different sizes of these funds change how the VCs invest in startups. If you have a $1 billion fund and need to return at least $3 billion to your investors, my example of a $100 million acquisition for a $25 million return is not exciting. But if you have a $10 million fund, it's a great return. In order to get returns like that, VCs need to be focused and know what they want to invest in. Investors need to find that sweet spot. Whether it's the type of company, like e-commerce, fintech, media, or the geographical region, or the stage, early versus late stage, every VC knows what they are looking for in a new investment. Hustle Fund structures their fund a little bit different than other funds, but they have a really clear view of what they're looking for in a new investment. This is where Sheehan and I pick up the conversation. You know, the premise of the way our investment process is set up is that in the early stage, it's actually quite hard to know anything about anything, right? It's like, what should you sort on? Um, because there's no traction, right? So it's like, how do you make a decision? And, and we believe that the most important thing to learn about a team is what is their ability to execute with pace? And that means with imperfect information, with what you have in hand, can you move forward? And it, it's quite obvious, right? The, the, the faster you can move, the longer your runway is, buys you more time to survive, higher chances of survival, higher your chance of success. Um, but I think what we've seen proven out consistently in our portfolio is that people who move faster tend to learn faster. And people who learn faster have higher chances of success. So that's what we're trying to figure out in these early stages is um, how fast are people moving and learning? And 
that's pretty hard to tell in a pitch. You know, how do you observe that? Um, and the only way you observe that is by working with people. Um, and so that's why we write a 25K check and then we do the work with them because that's how you get those repeated interactions to see, oh, okay, I see how this person is making decisions. I see how they are attacking the problem. Um, in terms of even getting to that point, the initial 25K check, you know, I think it's, it's a very standard checklist that every investor uses, right? Do I think this is a big market? Is this a real problem? Is this team the right team to attack it? Um, do they have a reasonable you know, set of customer insights and approaches? Um, and so I think that's, that's a pretty standard thing. Um, I think even across the three partners, we all vary in how we weight those various factors. Um, but, but I think that's a very standard thing. I, for, for the moving from the 25K to the bigger check, um, then really it is about you know, how we think that pace of execution is moving and, and how quickly that, that team is learning together about their market and business. Okay, so from the, the 25,000 to the, the next check, um, if you see you know, a lot of learnings, a lot of speed, uh, but their traction might not be um, you know, hockey stick-like, uh, would, is that still something that you would in, invest in if you believe in, in the market and the idea and the team? Uh, or are you, are you looking for traction at that point? It's really hard to see traction in six weeks. Yeah. So yes, if we, if we feel good about the team and what we learn in that six weeks, we will write the check ahead of traction. Okay. Um, because yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're selling like a B2B software product, right, it's quite unlikely that you'll be able to deliver traction in six weeks. Um, and I think it's one of those like humans are really smart where if you set a really concrete thing for them to hit, they will do, they will hit it. They'll try to hit it. Right. Um, yeah. and that might not be the right thing to get to the 25 K, right. You said you go through the normal checklist, but are you uh, looking for teams that have a, a product already or as the semblance of a product or are they, you know, just an idea phase? There's a range of things that we invest in. Some of them don't have a product, uh, but I guess I would say to people is, in this day and age, it is actually quite cheap and easy to test things. I would always encourage people to optimize for learning as much as they can for as little money as possible. I think when people show up, even if they don't have a product, they've probably done extensive customer research um, and can point to insights that you know, they are building on. Um, I think if you just sort of woke up and thought about something, you're like, hey, you know, maybe someone will give me money to like figure this out. That's not what we do um, because, yeah, it's just so, it is so cheap to test things today. And also, you know, you're always trying to find a founder who has some unique customer insight. Like why, what, what gives them the right to attack this problem? What, what, what have they done to, to give themselves confidence, not even us, give themselves confidence that they should spend five years of their life trying to do something. Um, and so that's, I think that's kind of what you want to see in that initial 25K. Got it. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> this is a very interesting concept that I've, uh, I've never heard of. Is this, you know, how did you guys decide this is the way that you guys want to do it? Um, are there other VC firms that are kind of taking this approach? I mean, I think that um, 
in some sense, incubators do this in a format. They just do them in a more cohort-based approach, right? They say, hey, I'll give you 150K for 7% of your company. You'll come through my program. I'll watch you work through my program, and then we'll do a demo day, and maybe we have a continuity fund or something that we'll put additional money in, right? So I think people do have that as well. Um, but I think as an investor, you're essentially trying to buy, you're always trying to figure out information either like per unit time or like per dollar, right? How can I buy more information at the lowest cost possible? Um, and I think for people who are later in the, who invest later, they basically don't need to do this because they just wait for traction to shake out. They, they just say, okay, well, you know, I don't actually need to put any money in. I can just wait for you to come to me when you raise your seed or when you raise your A, right? And the market will have shaken things out. Um, but for the stage that we play in, we can't really do that. Um, and so that's how we designed our, uh, that's how we designed our, our investment process. Got it. And so now you have this kind of two-step process to, to investing and every, every investment firm has their own, uh, sweet spot, right? Their investment thesis, their sweet spot of, uh, check size, like how, what industries are you guys looking at? What, um, you know, you get into the, you know, at the pre-seed stage, right? You hilariously early, but, um, as, as you get into that, uh, that second round, like, uh, how big of a check are you looking to write? Um, you know, explain on, expand on that. Yeah. So I think there could be a range of things. So sometimes, you know, people are like, Hey, we're growing really quickly, but we don't want to take the time out of our business right now to go do a whole formal fundraising pro process. Um, we already know you, um, you can move quickly. Can you write us an additional hundred K? And if that works, you know, that works well. Um, it could be part of a larger round that they're going out to raise. Um, and so that can be anywhere up to five, 600 K. Um, but eventually I think for the full positions, you know, we want to get to six, 700 K as a full position in the fund. Okay. Are uh, you but it doesn't have to happen all at one, one shot, you know, <clears throat> it can kind of step its way up there. Are you typically leading these these early rounds then once you get into that six or seven hundred K or are people writing bigger checks that you have to follow on? And I'm talking in the, the Southeast Asia um, investments. Yeah, in Southeast Asia, we tend to be part of larger rounds um, rather than um, leading them. But I would say that I don't rule that out. Um, I do think that we could lead a larger round. Um, so I guess, you know, if someone wanted to raise a million and a half or two and we said, okay, we'll lead with six or 700, I think we could do that. Um, but that's a little bit more unusual, I would say. And then, um, yeah, did you say, did you have any specific industries, sectors that you uh, are keen on investing in here or is it kind of anything that's in the, the digital internet space? Well, look at anything that is internet or technology, you know, software enabled. Um, but I want to figure out like, what's the best way to say this? Uh, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, like I have a website, so it's a technology company, give me money. Yeah. <laughs> and 
that's not true, right? Um, I, I think the the core of it has to be that the technology is giving you some sort of operating leverage. There is some sort of moat that you are building with your technology. Um, otherwise, there's no leverage in the business. Um, and so that makes it much less suitable for a venture capital investment. Um, you're, you're trying to weed out think, the WeWork type investments. Well, I think they make the argument that technology does give them an advantage. And so that's a question of whether you believe that or not. Okay. Um, but I think um, every company in the world uses technology today, right? That doesn't make them technology companies. Yeah. So, um, so I think you have to think about like, what is the role of technology in your business strategy and how does it actually bring advantage to your, um, to your firm? Um, and so I, I, I just want to weed out people who are like, oh, you know, I'm selling, I, I'm selling, I don't know, what's a good example. I'm selling mattresses on the internet. You know, I think, I think if you're a, if you're a DTC or like CPG consumer focused firm and, and you know a lot about those things, I think those can be interesting. Um, but I think for us who are sort of more software, um, traditional software and internet investors like those are just much harder for us to get comfortable with gotcha yeah and i think there's you know in the u.s there's we're starting to see the growth capped with a lot of these companies and then when they go public they're losing a lot of value uh because it's been you know so marketing driven um so going back to hustle fund you you are split between san francisco and then you and singapore um do you still, does that act as two separate offices and you're, in, or are you guys still, you know, one partnership, right? So if you have, you know, deal flow in Singapore where you say, you know, come to the Monday meeting or, you know, whenever you guys are doing it and say, uh, I have these three companies, right? You need the buy-in of uh, all of your San Francisco partners and they need the buy-in from, from you, or is it, you kind of look at things uh, separately? Um, so we look at things together. So, um, for the 25 K check, any partner can make their own decision. They don't need to consult, but for the larger checks, we need to be in consensus. And so that's when we discuss things. Uh, and we very much run as one fund. Um, so we look at things across the spectrum and I still do have a few U S investments. Um, some are legacy from when I was still there. Um, and then some are, you know, in fintech or, or other things where I felt like, oh, this is like a pretty interesting opportunity. Um, but by and large, I try to spend, you know, 90% of my time focused on, on Southeast Asia. I've been comparing startups in the U.S. versus Southeast Asia a lot in this episode. That's partly because of my background, but also because it causes some differences in the way that companies grow in Southeast Asia. As Sheehan mentioned, it's not just one country you have to worry about, it's 10. That adds complexity. Sheehan and I discussed the differences and the considerations startups need to think about as they grow their business in Southeast Asia. You've talked about why Southeast Asia you know, excites you, right? But we were, we were talking about regionally, it's a, it's a different way of building a company. And uh, I've had a couple entrepreneurs on the show who have uh, had to build out their company into different markets. Um, so I guess when you are, you know, it's, as trying to assess a company, it's, it's much more nuanced because each of these markets are smaller 
And so to really get scale most of the time, you need to hit multiple markets, right? So Singapore is a country of what, four or five million people, right? So you can build a company there, but that's, that's a very limited uh, market. So to build, to expand, you have to go into, you know, in Indonesia with 270 million people, you have to go into uh, Thailand, Malaysia, and now you're starting to run into different language, cultural barriers, uh, different regulations, and this is probably coming much faster than if you know you were an American company, and and you can build a company to scale within the U.S. market, and then you you know move to your next two locations, right? So, I guess is how does that play into your the way that you're looking at? companies to put to potentially invest in right in their total addressable market yeah it's a good question um i think so there's a few things one is like you want to make sure that wherever a company gets started at least it's big enough for them to be a local champion um and that it is not so localized that it's hard to scale regionally but having said that, I do think that sometimes when people try to rush the regional expansion, they also get tripped up because it's just a lot of complexity to handle. I mean, even if you look at Property Guru, like their main market is Singapore because it's true, Singapore is small, but the property prices here are much higher than everywhere else. So you actually don't have to do as many transactions um, to, to make some of the math work. Um, so, you know, I think you want to look at the addressable market in the home market that they're in. If they have a regional plan, you want to assess whether or not those countries are similar enough that the learnings from one thing can be applied to another thing. It's not just like a ground up restart. There's actually some benefits to doing them. It, it is definitely non-trivial, right? So I think that's, that's like the harder thing, right? Which is to say like, okay, if, if Grab had only stayed in Malaysia, that wouldn't have been as interesting a business, right? But if Grab had started in Indonesia, they could have spent a long time building their home market there and building up scale uh, before going to other countries. So you could, you could almost say that Grab's regionalization is driven, accelerated by the fact that they started in a smaller country. Um, so I think where the, the choice of like where you start and where you, where you, you grow the business, I think matters um, and dictates the pace of regionalization. And then when I'm not you, sure. Does that answer your question, Jesse? Yeah. When, when you're talking about looking at countries and when you're looking to expand and you're looking at similarities, um, you know, what, when you're, is that just purely language or is it, you know, the consumer, consumer behavior, right? Because Singapore going to Malaysia <clears throat> because they speak you know, primarily English there uh, would be relatively easy than maybe to the Philippines, but then you have, uh, Indonesia, you have Thailand um, that are, you know, also significant markets, but completely different language. Yeah. I mean, I think language is definitely a factor, but it's less about language, right? Like I would assert to you that an upper middle class mom in Jakarta has more in common with a upper middle class mom in Singapore than she does with a tier three Indonesian mom. Yeah. Even though they speak the same language. Okay. So it's, it is more about we that consumer. Yeah, because I think the psychographics, right, the, the, like, what is the customer insight behind how they buy um, and, like, what they're motivated by, what brands they have affinity to, I think that's, like, pretty different. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and what are the distribution points? What's their comfort with online versus in person? Um, I think I think those are things that you have to look look at, right? And then there's also, so separate from the consumer, there's also like market structure issues, right? So like if you operate anything that has um, brokers, right? Do the brokers operate in similar ways? Or are there peculiarities about how brokers' relationships with customers are structured in one market versus the other? Um, and, and I would have to say for the U.S., there, it, there is regional variation, right? Um, so like for many of the financial services firms, you know, they had to go get licensed state by state. And so they also had to choose, right? So as people always end up in like California, Texas, right? Yeah. Like you start with the bigger states, right? And you kind of like move your way and like at the end of the day, you're like, okay, maybe we'll attack Maine. But, but so, so I think there is an element of just like, I think of CEOs as capital allocators, right? Just as investors are capital allocators, CEOs are capital allocators. And they always have to think about what is the best use of my next dollar? You know, where does my next dollar leverage best what I already have accomplished and learned in my initial set of business? Um, and so I, I think that varies a lot across the types of products and consumers you're trying to serve. Um, and, and I think Southeast Asia just adds the additional dimension of complexity, which is language, of course, and then government regulation. Yeah, got it. And so looking, the regional aspect of, of building the, and growing the company adds a different layer of complexity to how you are uh, assessing, you know, potential investments. One question that I have <clears throat> is... Oh, wait, one more thought. Yeah. I think that's going to get easier, though, because... Um, now you see companies who are building infrastructure across the region that will make it easier for subsequent companies to build on top of that infrastructure. So like, give an example of whether that. it's, whether it's, um, making payments easier across countries, uh, whether it is making logistics easier, you know, people trying to make cloud warehouses and things like that. Um, so there's a bunch of things that people are building that are trying to be more, more of um rails like um and i think that will be sort of an interesting accelerant right just like everyone can use aws right we don't have to go buy servers anymore yeah um imagine if like i could spin up warehouses across the region and i didn't have to like individually go and contract warehouses in every geography that i needed something shipped um th things like that i think will make the regionalization process easier um, the regulatory stuff is hard, right? But I think even on that level, you see more collaboration between, um, various monetary authorities and things like that, um, as that sort of becomes more connected as well. And I think because of COVID, I think you're also going to see increasing connectivity on the healthcare front. Yeah. You make a really good point about building that, that infrastructure layer and, and how companies here are. Uh, <clears throat> digitizing their businesses and, you know, a company like Stripe, I think, uh, comes to mind that is making, you know, financial transactions a lot easier all over the world. And once, once those pipes are laid, uh, yeah, more startups can definitely be built uh, at a much faster pace. Uh, but so kind of going back to that, that U.S. investment mentality versus Southeast Asia, uh, it is a little more complex uh, geographically in, in Southeast Asia, but uh, Silicon Valley is 
unique in the way that a lot of the investors look at uh, or used to look at at startup investments, right? They were very focused on growth, right? And growth at all costs, speed, right? You know, it's something that you've also touched on, right? We've, we've seen Uber raise, you know, billions of dollars because of their, their rate of, of growth. Uh, and then in recent months, um, they've, they've been kind of pumping the brakes. They've been looking at the unit economics a lot more closely. I think this is aligned with more of the way that, you know, New York startups or investors have kind of approached it. How in Southeast Asia are uh, investors looking? Is, is it a combination? Are they, are you guys more focused on, um, on profits and revenue or still user growth is one of the, the major contributing uh, factors? I think it varies from investor to investor, right? Um, I, I can really just speak for us and, and how we think about businesses. Like growth is important because uh, if the business isn't growing quickly, then it will tend not to fit the venture capital profile of returns that you know we need basically to, 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 to deliver back to our LPs, right? And that's why right venture capital has traditionally existed in in places that are uh, if you, if you go back to the history of venture capital right it was started out in like semiconductors and storage right where you do a big big investment in R and D up front and then every marginal thing that you've done you know the marginal cost is almost zero and so you can reap the benefits of that and there's real you know operating leverage in it um, and so I think that it's important to demonstrate that ability to grow because otherwise like why did we do the deal um but it is growth is not a goal in and of itself right uh growth basically is an output it is the demonstration that people want the thing that you're selling and you have found a channel to effectively reach them um so that they can buy the thing that you're selling and same thing right we don't we don't start businesses to raise money we start businesses to be sustainable uh, sources of cash flow and so at the end of the day you do need to have something that actually does spit out free cash flow and so then the question more is okay when should i be spending money on growth and when do i not and when should i care about profitability and when do i not right and so i would say at the early stage of the game you're not optimizing for profitability because you just, you know, it's impossible, right? You're doing all your investments in R&D, you're building your initial product, you're doing initial tests. But if you don't think you can ever get to a end game where the customer is paying you more than what it costs you to make the thing, then that's a problem. You don't have a sustainable business. And you cannot be fooled by the fact that you're selling a dollar for 90 cents into perpetuity. And I think the hard part is figuring out, well, in some things, it looks ridiculous, and in some things, it doesn't. And so when does it work and when does it not? And I think you know people love to talk about how Amazon lost all of this money early on. But today, you know, I think there are 100 million prime households in the US. You know, they are a growing amount of the e-commerce spend in retail, right? And so for every... Amazon, there's probably 10 pets.coms or whatever the case may be, right? So I think trying to tease out like whose growth is ultimately 
um, sustainable and like leads to real LTV versus whose growth is totally just fabricated and, and ephemeral. I think that is the challenge for investors. And, you know, we get it wrong. People get it wrong, right? So that's, that's just part of the game. Yeah, so it sounds like growth is still definitely, definitely important, but it's not a growth at all cost at 90 cents on the dollar. So when it comes to acquisition market in uh, Southeast Asia, it's significantly different, right? And so, um, you know, you, you need to be aware of that because that's, you know, how you'll get a large portion of your your funds returns. Um, I, I had spoken to a VC who had told me their rule of thumb was if you look at a, a similar business in the U.S., uh, and let's say they sold for a billion dollars, you have to take a 90% uh, discount uh, for, when looking at what that company could be acquired for uh, in Southeast Asia. Maybe he was speaking specifically Indonesia, uh, which changes like uh, the, you know, how your fund gets returned uh, based on the amount of dollars that you invest versus your San Francisco investments versus Southeast Asia investments. Are you seeing the acquisition market and the prices increased, a higher appetite? Like um, I'm struggling outside of Alibaba being, or acquiring Lazada for a billion dollars. Most of the acquisitions I see here are for maybe a hundred million at most, you know, down to 10 to 20 million. Um, how does that play into, you know, when you, you're looking at, at companies, uh, does that, factor in or how do you think about that? So, I mean, I think the thing that to keep in mind is you can't control whether or not someone buys your company, right? You can't make that happen. The only thing you can control is what is your entry price and whether you think that person is building anything of value. Those are your toggles. And so, you know, my belief and maybe it's, old-fashioned is uh, if you build something of value either someone will want to buy you or you'll have a great business but in either scenario you're not counting on other people to deliver your outcome and so I think the the challenge of you know comparing um, an acquisition from market to market is is um, if they really are apples to apples, if, if the company is really the same technology and the same free cash flow profile, there's no reason why it should cost less here than in the US. But, oh. if, but I think the, the fact is that most companies here have not really gotten to any sort of scale outside of the unicorns, right? Most, most startups, like if you look in the Bay Area, you actually have the whole spectrum of the ecosystem. You have the, the pre-seed, the seed, you have all these baby companies, but you have a ton of companies that are they'll do 50, 100 million in revenue or more, right? But they're not Airbnb, they're not Uber, right? But they're still yep. solidly, uh, they're still solid businesses. But here we don't really have that, right? You have companies who are like at one giant end of the spectrum and you have companies who are doing like one, two million in revenue. There's the, the, the middle is still quite sparse. Um, and so you need that to grow more um, to start seeing some of these bigger acquisitions happen, uh, right? Because like, why would I pay a billion dollars for something doing two million in revenue? I wouldn't. Yeah. Right. Unless I could like really do something with it. So. 
So uh, it sounds like um, one entrepreneur should focus on their fundamentals of their business, not worry about the acquisition, right? Because that will ultimately determine the final outcome. But two, because this is an emerging uh, market and we are, the whole ecosystem is growing, uh, the larger acquisitions will eventually come down the road as uh, all of the businesses start to scale and, and, and grow, not just out, you know, outside of like the, the handful of unicorns that there are here. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I, I was going to go just look this up where was, uh, well, but I mean, even if you look at like, what was it? The Nigerian company that uh, Stripe bought. Yeah. It's like $200 million outcome. Yeah. Right? Um, and, like, they built something of value. And Stripe Corp Dev is like, should we build this ourselves or should we just buy these people? Right? So I think until you get to that level, then it's like, okay you know, am, am I building something that is actually proprietary that is harder for others to try to just copy from scratch with sheer capital and their own engineering talent and they would just rather buy me. Um, so, so I think that's, I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't think technology changes the fundamentals of business. Business is business, right? Are you going to pay me for the thing I made? <laughs> um, and you're going to come back, right? Yeah. And I, And I think that's like, that that's like the thing like if you look at like there's some businesses in southeast asia that are not technology that are amazing businesses right and you know they're they're unsexy they're traditional but there's that doesn't make them bad businesses they're still great businesses yeah i have a lot of friends who are you know taking over the, the family business that uh definitely unsexy but a lot of very solid business fundamentals that uh allow them you know a nice lifestyle so we uh, we're coming up on the hour. How do you how do you view the Indonesian startup market, right? Because it <clears throat> to me it is it should be the crown jewel, right? It should be the epicenter of all Southeast Asia because it has the largest population. But I think right now it's still Singapore is still that where a lot of people uh, associate Southeast Asia tech. How have you seen you know deal flow or types of companies uh, or any changes in the in the last few years of of companies in Indonesia? I think what is interesting about Indonesia is that we're seeing more repeat founders come out of Indonesia. So like either people got in as part of the initial rocket companies or um, they were part of the unicorns, whether they're coming out of Toko or, or Gojek or the others um, and wanting to start their own businesses. And I think that's a really good sign for the ecosystem to see more experienced people founding rather than first time founders. Um, Cause they've already kind of had a couple at bats. Um, and they've seen how some things can go wrong. Uh, so I think that's a really good sign for the maturation of, of the Indonesian ecosystem. Um, and then, of course, Indonesia has the most mature ecosystem from a funds, like a focused fund perspective, right? Like, you don't really meet that many Vietnam-only funds. There's definitely no Singapore-only funds, right? Uh, whereas Indonesia has a number of, like, Indonesia-only funds. Um, and I think that specialization and focus is also a great, a great sign for, for the maturation of, of that ecosystem. Got it. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but that definitely makes, makes sense. Cause you can build a quite a big business. Gojek has, has, has proven that, that if you focus on Indonesia first, not regionally, you can, you could definitely hit scale. 
thank you so much for the time and the conversation that you've, you've given us. Can you uh, let everyone know where they can find you and Hustle Fund online? Sure. Um, we're pretty active on Twitter. So Hustle Fund VC. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Shan Co. Um, our website is hustlefund.vc. Uh, so if you want to pitch us a company, please feel free to fill out the form. We actually do review all the submissions. Um, and I think we probably get five, 600 submissions a month. Is that a week? It definitely is going up every month. Um, and so we try pretty hard to stay on top of that. Um, and yeah, we, you know, um, oh, one more thing. Um, we just launched a podcast called First Pitches. And um, it chronicles six entrepreneurs' uh, very first pitch. Um, so we've got some public company CEOs like Aaron Levy from Box, um, founder like Michelle Zatlin from Cloudflare and a bunch of other great founders. And it takes them all the way back to that very first pitch they did. Um, so you can kind of see where it all began. Um, so if that is of interest to you, firstpitches.com is where you can find the episodes. No, that sounds, that sounds amazing. I will link uh, all of your stuff in the description. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it was wonderful speaking with you. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Side Door Podcast. I hope I was able to break down venture capital basics for you while also shedding some light on how a VC thinks. Feel free to drop me five stars on your favorite podcast player. Sharing this episode with a friend would be greatly appreciated. I'm at Jesse Bowman on Twitter and Instagram if you have any suggestions for future guests or how I can improve the podcast. Until next time, stay curious.